So welcome. Uh, we are in discussion this morning with Alan Brough in Alberta. Alan has a history of working with the banking sector and in uh, with credit unions. So Alan, could you just give us a description of your, your background so that we have some idea of uh, where you're speaking from? Um, I've got quite a checkered background, actually. My career started off in advertising and marketing. I've run my own advertising agencies, activation companies, that sort of thing. And I think that's really what alerted me originally to the situation that we're in, because once you're in the industry, you can see the techniques that are used for um, addressing or changing public opinion. So that was where I started my career. For the last 10 years or so, I've been in the banking sector in Alberta, working for one of the, well, the largest credit union in Alberta. Um, and that a lot of my clients had been um, international banks. So I've worked with the likes of Standard Chartered Bank, Citibank, that sort of thing. So it's given me a good um, view of both sides of the banking spectrum from credit unions through to uh, commercial and charter banks. Um, and then uh, in November, I think it was, I joined the Canada Health Alliance as their executive director. So I've been looking at the new health paradigm and how we can improve healthcare in Canada as well. So I've got a fairly broad uh, range of experience across those different sectors. Perfect. Okay, well, let's launch right into the issue at hand in Canada, which uh, it appears to me that there's a run on the banks since the government decided to freeze accounts, uh, anyone who had donated to the trucker convoy. And some of those accounts are apparently still frozen. Give, give us a rundown on what happened there and what um, do you think there is a run on the bank? It's, it's a good question because a lot of people, when you talk about a run in the banks, a lot of people say, I don't believe that because I'm not seeing people lining up in queues outside the bank or trying to fight to get to the ATM. Rather like we saw in Greece when they had the economic meltdown, probably, well, that was about eight, eight years ago now, seven, eight years ago. So we haven't seen the, the physicality of that. But how that came about and, and where I think it sort of ended up is that um, we all got very excited about the announcement of the state of emergency. Um, but the banking, the move to um, be able to have control over bank accounts actually happened a day before the announcement of the state of emergency. And what happened there is the um, um, Deputy Prime Minister of Canada um, changed the designation of the, the trackers and the freedom movement generally um, so that it would fall under the purview of FinTrack, which is the financial um, reporting agency of Canada. Um, so that it fell within the categorization of uh, proceeds of crime and money laundering and that sort of thing. So it gave FinTrack the right to investigate and pursue anybody that fell within that category. Um, and that's really what gave the government the, the right through FinTrack to freeze and seize accounts. That, um, that was not changed when the state of emergency was lifted. So that um, authorization to FinTrack still stands to this moment. And a lot of people don't realize that. And that's really the authorization that they've got where FinTrack can say to any financial institute, we're suspicious of these accounts, you know, please freeze and seize and let's investigate them. And that's really what gave them jurisdiction with, with that. And when, when, when that started to happen, when the freezing and seizing of accounts started to happen, clearly a lot of people became worried about the security of their, their bank accounts. And so that's when we started to hear about the 
um, the run on the banks and the, the amount of money that was being taken out of accounts and out of Canada generally. Now, I don't know exactly what the truth is and how much money was taken out of Canada and how that impacted things like the Credit Union Association. But I do believe that the banking sector generally and the Credit Union Association of Canada, CCUA, um, raised concern at the level of money that was being withdrawn. I think a lot of personal credit union accounts were being were having cash drawn out of it. So people were going to the ATM machine every day, drawing cash out. But a lot of large amounts of money were being shipped where people could out of the country generally. And a lot of investment money started to question whether they would be safe in Canada, which is, is something which has never happened before. Canada has been a safe country before. Mm-hmm. And I believe um, in the reports that I've read that it was part of that pressure which led to the raising of the, uh, or the lifting of the emergency powers. But the truth of the matter is it's not necessarily the uh, emergency powers which are leading to the, the banking squeeze. It is the designation of the freedom movement as a domestic terrorist organization which allows FinTrack to do that. And that still stands. So that has not changed up to today. So does that explain why some people have not had their bank accounts unfrozen? Um, I think that getting your bank account unfrozen requires um, an appeal, it requires evidence, and likely requires a good lawyer to argue on on your behalf. So certain organizations have been able to do that. And I think it's really because of their resolve to do that and the fact that they can put some budget behind getting it done. Um, I think the average person who doesn't have those sort of resources is in trouble. And I think that the intention is to make examples of, of people so that everybody else is too terrified to, to do further, further donation. I suspect that's probably what, what the cause is. Um, because at the end of the day, it's hard to justify freezing and seizing somebody's account because they made a 50 buck donation to something that wasn't seen to be a criminal offense when they did it. You know, it's, it, it is questionable at the best of times, but um, the primary reason is that the FinTrack instruction hasn't been changed as yet. So is FinTrack allowed to monitor anyone's account or does it need to be specified as suspicious? Because um, I was under yeah. the impression that FinTrack is monitoring everything in excess of $10,000, all transactions. I think that they are. Um, and anything over $10,000 um, is raised or noticed and then they would consider, is there any likelihood of um, uh, money laundering or the proceeds of criminality, anything like that? So any large transactions will, will be noted um, and, and you know, will, be, will be thought about. And that could be as simple as, let's just look into the reasoning for it. Let's you know, ask the, the, the customer of the, the bank, what, why are they doing this? And, you know, that, so it, it shouldn't be highly um, overt in terms of the monitoring anything over 10,000. And that's just the, the 10,000 restriction was in place prior to the designation of the freedom movement as a domestic terrorist organization. That was a fairly standard thing. So I think that's been in place for a while. And I haven't necessarily seen that as um, a huge cause of concern. If there's a high level of money laundering, you know, you do want to be able to get to the root of that. Mm-hmm. But I think that by designating the, the freedom movements or freedom organizations as falling within suspicion, it, it ups the ante for the, the freedom movement. Because primarily, I think it's, it's going to be effective to try and strangle those organizations financially. So 
um, it is it is an effective move by 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 the government. So. The freedom movement was designated as a domestic terrorism organization. Now that the facts reveal that the donors were not um, nefarious, why has that designation not been removed or reversed? I think it's because of the effectiveness of curtailing the organization and the programs and the activities of the freedom movement. Um, it, it's, it's an effective means of, of slowing down the freedom movement. And I think that's what, what the intention is. So you can argue things in court for a long time and you can delay proceedings in court for a long time. And it's, it is a matter of time. If they can keep this in place for long enough, many of the freedom organizations will start to slow down just because they don't have the cash reserves to, to continue organizing and that sort of thing. So I think that's the intention. Another thing that worries me is that if the government... Um, is sued. As we've seen, there's been successful court cases against the government. They've had to pay fines. They've had to do all sorts of things. But at the end of the day, their lawyers are on retainer and their fines are both paid for by taxpayer funding. And so there's not the pain. You know, if you've got people in the private sector who have a legal battle between them, one of them is going to feel a lot of financial pain when they lose. And they think about that before they go to court. I think that because it's taxpayer funded, the government doesn't feel the same degree of pain. And so the tragedy is that if you sue the government and you get a payout, you're just diverting taxpayer funding from developmental and infrastructure development, which is what we should be using our tax or what the government should yeah. be using our funding for. So it's a little bit, it, it, it calls into question how our taxpayer funding is being used, unfortunately. And I think that's why the government's happy to delay as long as they can because they'll eventually wear down the movement. And if they lose, they can pay with taxpayer funding. It's no problem. So does this mean that anyone who donated to the truckers movement is vulnerable to get have their account seized at this point? Could they come after anyone of the, you know, are we all vulnerable if we have donated or not at this point? I, I think that and I hate to sort of spread fear, alarm and despondency, but I think that there is a risk um, that they could come after any of us um, if, if we've donated. And I think that's the intention is to make people terrified of don donating. So while they could, the volume of it might not make it justifiable. They might not actually come after everyone who has donated, but Theoretically, they could. And I think that yeah. having that sword hanging over our heads makes a lot of people reticent about doing anything again. So what you could do, I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you could continue to support the freedom movement. You know, we could be looking at, I mean, good old school checks. Most of us have even lost our checks because we've never used them for the last five years. But posting a check becomes quite a lot more anonymous. You know, posting a Visa gift card becomes a lot more anonymous. You know, there's ways around it, um, but and I think that we're going to need to pursue those ways to get a, get around these sort of obstacles. But theoretically, yes, they could could come after us, and that really takes us into the territory of real um, government overreach. I believe it really goes against yeah. a lot of the freedoms that Canada has always stood for, and and that's why we've all been proud to be Canadian in the past. You know, because we stand for freedoms, because we. We stand for freedom of choice, liberty, and and freedom of expression. You know, it's all about these things um, that that are being assaulted, which is why I think a lot of um, 
uh, investment money has started drying up because people are thinking, wow, this is a new Canada that we haven't seen before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that was reflected in the EU parliamentary criticism that we heard about Justin Trudeau particularly, which I thought was phenomenally harsh. Obviously, it didn't Mm -hmm. get a lot of coverage in the mainstream media. But you've never heard that sort of criticism of of a Canadian leader before, or, or really any leader of a Western democracy. It was really shocking. Yeah, yeah, I agree. But I doubt the mainstream media is covering it. I think they... What I hear, and I haven't actually seen the report to be fair, but I hear that it was cited as a standing ovation. Meanwhile, people were standing to exit as quickly as possible, which I'm told anyway, so I'm probably you know, not citing facts, but that's, that's the rumor that I've heard was reported. I had heard, I, th- I think it was the Serbian uh, leader had boycotted Trudeau's speech so that when Trudeau did get up to speak, the crowd was almost all gone. <laughs> He was speaking to a very small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was it was almost empty, and so the camera was quite close on Trudeau, so that you couldn't actually see that. Yes. But um, but a couple, there were three particularly outspoken people who all stated that they didn't believe that Trudeau had the right to address them, um, and I think that is that is shocking. You know, if if somebody had said that about our leader, no matter who they were, any time up until two years ago, it would have caused outrage in Canada. Mm-hmm. We would have been highly offended, no matter who our leader was. You don't talk to our leader like that. No. And yet that's where we've got to. It's, it is shocking. And, and it's good that it tells me that the world sees what's going on in Canada and the world supports us. We have more allies internationally than we know, I think. And I think we can take encouragement from that because, you know, I don't think that we are a revolutionary movement by any means. We're just wanting to have the freedoms that were granted to every Canadian up until two years ago. You know, we're just wanting a return to normality. Absolutely. I want to jump back. You made a couple of comments on safe ways to support any sort of freedom movement. You said Visa gift cards, check, which, uh, and maybe talk on some other options, but checks I would think could be quite traceable, no? Um, The difference is um, that I think that if you... Um, you need to be, you need to give a bit of thought to the bank account that you hold. Um, I've always strongly advocated for having your accounts with credit unions. And the reason why I've strongly supported credit unions is that they are financial cooperatives that are owned by the customers. So as a, as a customer of a credit union, um, you have the right to vote on the board and you share in the profit of the credit union. And that that ability to have a say in terms of the running of the credit union always made me feel that they would take um, their customers a lot more seriously than the charter banks. Um, And the smaller the credit union you go to, the less likely it it has government or municipal business. Because a charter bank or a a commercial bank that's got a lot of government business will not um, risk losing that, that business. That's going to be their lifeblood. So if the government says you need to do X, Y, Z, sure, they'll do it because they can't afford to lose that, that, that client. Small credit unions that don't have any municipal or government business will, will not be under that same pressure and they will take their member owners, as they call them, much more seriously. So I always thought there was a much greater degree of, of uh, security and privacy with a credit union. Mm-hmm. Now, that changed when the designation or the responsibility was moved to FinTrack to decide on which accounts to close. But the credit union still takes their customers very seriously. So if they're a small credit union without government business and you write a check, they will know who the check was made out to. 
but that ne won't necessarily be obvious to FinTrack. So the chances are it's not going to be high profile. And it's really doing stuff at, at a lower degree of, of profile. So if you write a check um, and your account is with a charter or commercial bank, they would probably, well, they might notice that. They might report it back. They might be willing to do that. Some credit unions might also be obliged to do that. Who knows? There is a degree of risk. But mm -hmm. I just think with all things, try and minimize the risk as much as possible. Um, and, and so that's really the thought yeah. around that, that it's not an electronic trans transfer, so it's less likely to be flagged. Okay. Or, or so, so checks with small credit unions that may not cooperate quite so closely with FinTrack, Visa gift cards, any other method of supporting? Um, I think um, likely the issue around gift cards might be the, might, might be the best way to go. Mm -hmm. um, I also think a lot of people within the, the freedom movement have been talking about sort of old school cash uh, fundraising. You know, if you can do um, cash transfers or look at local chapters of organizations that could receive cash donations. Um, there are also things like, you know, um, Bitcoin, that type of thing. And there's been a lot of conversation around um, the fact that blockchain and, and the, the privacy of that is really ideal and the non-central control of, of crypto is ideal for these, these times. Um, but it's a highly volatile um, sort of environment. We know that Bitcoin has gone up just, or it's about 16% in the last week. And then we might see it lose 20% in another week. You know, you just don't know where it's going to go on the day. And I think it, it is being manipulated. But I think that there is there is opportunity with, with cryptocurrencies as well mm -hmm. to be able to, um, to donate. I think it's a little complicated though, because people need to, you need to have a degree of knowledge on, on how to do that. And I think that you've also got to understand how to be able to easily convert crypto back into fiat currency, back into Canadian yeah. dollar. Mm -hmm. And there are certain of these um, cryptocurrencies that you can convert to gift cards, that sort of thing. But it's worth doing a bit of, bit of research into how to do that. Mm -hmm. But I think all of those sort of things are going to be really explored in depth over the next sort of month or so as organizations realize um, the, the severity of the situation and look mm -hmm. into that. So I think it'll be a combination of all of those. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, as Catherine Austin Fitz says, if there's one thing that we should be doing, um, investing in, it is in the preservation of our freedoms. And so we, we all need to rally around this cause um, because I think it is going to determine the future for quite a few generations ahead. Absolutely. When you mention cash transfers, are you referring to e-transfers? Um, what, yeah, what is a, a cash transfer? Well, you could. You, I think we are talking about e-transfers, um, and a lot of um, organisations have had donate buttons on their their websites. And an, an e-transfer is pretty much the same type of thing, but you're not going through the the organization that facilitates the transfer on a donate button. So you've got companies like Stripe and that sort of thing that do the backend transfer. Um, and they have been blacklisting a lot of the freedom movement as well. So they've been cutting off the ability for those sort of donate buttons, which were very popular up until about two months ago mm -hmm. from, from working. Um, and whereas if people do a direct e-transfer, at least it's not using the 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 technology which people have become used to on, on mm -hmm. so i think 
you know, you've got e-transfer. To my mind, checks are probably better than that, and gift cards are probably the best at the moment, or yeah. um, crypto crypto payments. Um, yeah. And then if you made a crypto yeah. donation, yeah. it is up to the organization to be able to um, trade that on. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if the worst case scenario plays out, and who knows whether it will, you know, we've all got to decide at where we're going to project the future. But I always think it's best to plan for the worst and hope for the best. But if the worst does roll out, we would be looking at almost like a new shadow um, economy forming where the 10, 15, 20% of people who are ejected from the existing economic system are going to need to, to find their way. And that'll start with bartering, that sort of thing. We've talked about or heard lots of talk about people buying gold, silver. Silver coins are very popular because you can trade with them. So people are thinking, what would I trade in? And I think crypto will come to the, the forefront quite quickly if we go down that worst-case scenario road that, that you know, the, as long as something is deemed to have value, it will it will be looked at as an alternative of currency. And we've seen that sort of thing happening in countries like Zimbabwe, where you got had hyperinflation in two thousand and eight, and it's it's gone back that way quite recently. But there, prices were doubling um, every day uh, in terms of cash value. So, mm -hmm. if you had any cash, you had to spend it today because tomorrow it's worth half the price. And so then people started looking at bartering. They started looking at livestock as currency. There's all sorts of, of things that you can do. And I think mm -hmm. in, a, in a country like Canada, we'd probably be looking at maybe silver coins, uh, crypto, that type of thing. Whether it'll get to that or not, I'm not sure. And I know that, you know, I don't want to be, as I say, particularly alarmist. It might not. But, but if it does, those sort of things will, will come to the fore. So therefore, donating by crypto might not be a bad idea. But mm -hmm. again, you know, you, you do need a degree of knowledge to, to know how to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, while we're on the topic of uh, getting your money out of the country, which you referred to earlier, that there seems to be a mass exodus. In my experience, speaking with clients, I'm hearing a lot of clients saying that they're having trouble getting the money out of the institution. So they go to withdraw a certain sum. The banks uh, may say, sorry, come back in a few days. Or the banks say, you want X? No, we'll give you a quarter of that. Uh, some are saying there, you know, there's a limit, a monthly limit, a weekly limit, a monthly limit. Uh, some have even had tellers whisper to them and say, I get in trouble if I give you money. And they look very nervous. What's going on? I think that it's there's a couple of things that are playing into that. And what the sort of official policy and, and how coordinated it is, I'm not entirely sure. But I know that with... Um, some of the smaller credit unions, there was a concern when money started to be withdrawn um, around the time that the account started to be frozen coming out of the, the trucker donation story. Um, and a lot of those smaller credit unions were worried that they might actually uh, dry up in terms of the availability of cash in the institution at the time and if their ATMs would start to run out. Because if people are trying to withdraw and they find the ATM has got nothing in it, the rumor spreads like wildfire. Mm -hmm. And so you want to try and avoid getting to that point where people start to see evidence of a run on the banks. So I think they quickly clamped down, well, not clamped down, but started to restrict the amount of cash outflows. Um, and as I say, a lot of people were drawing a daily limit to the maximum just to try and get cash out of, out of their bank accounts um, in anticipation that it might get 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 frozen. Um, so I think that they were trying to just make sure that they didn't get to a point where they had to say, look, sorry, we don't have 
the 3,000 bucks you want or anything like that, because it would um, that would then trigger probably a, a broader run. The larger banks would have um, been in lockstep with that as well, because their agenda was to try and stop the outflow of larger amounts of money out of the country to, you know, maybe US dollar bank accounts or foreign bank accounts altogether. Mm -hmm. um, the concern with those is that you'd need to have set those up pretty much before we, we've got to the situation where we're at now, because it's quite difficult to open um, foreign bank accounts at this stage, and there are a lot of questions that are, that are being asked. So quite a lot of people don't have the ability to ship money out, but those that do have been trying to do it as much as possible. And again, those restrictions in place to try and um, withhold or, or minimize the, um, the, the outflow and, and spread it out over a period of time where you can manage it better. If it all you know, left the country over a 48-hour period, it would be a major knock, and the, you've got to try and manage the flow of that. So I think there is a degree, uh, I don't know how coordinated it is across the commercial banks and the credit unions, but the banking or the financial sector generally would be wanting to minimize the outflow uh, of both cash and foreign foreign transfers. Mm -hmm. um, and well, the, this is, uh, so the clients that I've spoken to, they some of them have very large sums in the bank and they're panicking yeah. because in their mind, if you're being restricted, to X number of dollars per week or per month, they want it all out. And the bank is now saying, sorry, we can't. That they're talking to their neighbors. And yeah. in my impression is this is a growing problem. And, um, I and, think and so the banks because... are seeing more, they're seeing more restrictions and they're yeah. seeing more anxiety on the part of the tellers. And yeah. um, they're, if they are trying to set up a foreign account, they're being blocked. Yeah. unless it appears that they have a very legitimate reason to open that foreign account. I can, I see some panic setting in in the last week or so that I haven't yeah. heard up until now. And uh, it, it seems to me that we're, we have an escalating problem here. And with the fractional banking system, in theory, the banks don't have the money. If everyone oh. doesn't want to withdraw, it's not there. So what does that look like? What, what will the banks do and what, okay, what recourse do you have? If you have uh, half a million sitting in a bank account and you want it, you want to invest in some real estate outside the country, you want it out, what, what, what are your options? I mean, to my mind, we don't, um, you don't have many quick options when they start to, to put in place restrictions like this. Um, the lesson is that we need to, not have our funds pooled in one place. So if you've got a half million bucks in an account and you want to go and buy a property and you'd like to put that down um, quickly, it's going to become difficult, particularly you know if it's outside of Canada, which is exactly what people are trying to do. Um, my advice would always be, and unfortunately it's a little bit of hindsight, but have several accounts with lesser amounts of money in it so that you can sort of shift money between accounts and be able to send smaller amounts out. But because you've got maybe eight or 10 accounts, you can achieve the same sort of volume and nimbility, if I could use that word, right. of, of moving them around. Um, if you're in a position now where you've got one, one main account with a large amount of money in it, I would still start to diversify that, open an account at the credit union, or several credit unions open accounts somewhere else. And I would say the smaller, I still think the smaller credit unions are going to be a little bit more friendly and a little less quick on applying restrictions just by the fact that they are member owned. Um, so I think the attitude is slightly different. 
but a lot of these restrictions would be coming down from um, central dictates. So all of them are going to be caught caught up in it one way or the other. But try and spread your money as much as possible, I would think, um, and just keep moving as much as you can um, up to your daily limit. I, I would think you know diversified across accounts. And out of each of those, try and try and take money out to to your daily limit. It, you might not be able to get it all out, but every day you're getting yeah. some. And we know that, as you said, with the the fractional reserve banking and the fact that we're on a fiat currency, it, both of those two points put us in a vulnerable position. And the the risk of that vulnerability is increasing dramatically with the the overprinting of money and and the fact that we've got more money in circulation, less value, and less confidence. And to your point about the, the growing panic, although they've managed to hold hold down the panic up to now, and as I say, nobody has actually seen the run on banks as yet, we know that it, it, the trajectory is beginning to happen. The, every time that people talk to somebody else, the word is, is spreading and concern is spreading. So it does build up to a critical mass at, at a certain point, and I think we're, we're moving towards that. Um, so just look at whatever you can get out, get out, because if we do get to a point where inflation well i mean the real rate of inflation is really questionable but it's certainly a lot more than we think i mean if the official rate went up to anything between five and ten percent which i think is highly likely as an official rate is well beyond that at the moment i think but if that was to happen and that affects interest rates the vulnerability for a lot of people who are highly exposed because money has been so cheap uh, over the last five years people have got used to getting cheap cheap borrowing and if that suddenly now needs to be paid back at 7%, say, and we've been used to 2%, mm-hmm. that'll push a lot of people over the edge. And I think that'll accelerate the, the, the panic when you start to see that happen. Right. So, I think if, so if, if Mr. and Mrs. Smith have a large sum of money in one institution and they're trying to diversify across different institutions to, to reduce the risk, and the bank is giving them a very small daily sum or a weekly sum, how can you bypass that? Can, are there um, are there wiring? Can you wire money? Can you send uh, money drafts like bank drafts? What what are your options if the bank is is trying to restrict you? How can you bypass that? Um, I would I would be reluctant to do anything that could be seen to be um, not entirely within the the regulations or or the law. Now, there's obviously a difference around uh, bank regulations and law per se, but anything that that raises question around being um, sort of pushing the the limits or questionable, like um, I think that that would would raise eyebrows and would get get you noticed. So my my advice, although it's frustrating to a lot of people, and I need to say that I'm you know clearly not a not a deep expert. I don't really know. The loopholes that you can you can go into, but my view is take as much as you can um, within the regulations, because anything anything over that um, in terms of of the loopholes will will get noticed. I think um, so. I, I tend to play a little bit more of a sort of pragmatic game, take it a little bit slower and a little bit um, more cautiously to save yourself getting getting onto the radar, as it were. Now depending on how much money you've got, there, there's a great deal of stress and tension that you might have knowing that you can't get it get it all out under the current situation. Mm-hmm. But I would always just say, take as much, get as much as you can out legitimately. Don't, and don't get yourself flagged. Um, 
and and whatever you can get out essentially be happy that you get it out every day um be pleased that you've got that that little bit more because if we do get into a situation of runaway inflation you know it's it's all going to be questionable but try and take as much as you can i i would always be hesitant to um to get people to really push the limits too much because you don't you don't you really don't want to be flagged um but if you are flagged it is your money how are they allowed you know, if I if I have a hundred thousand or half a million dollars in the bank, that is my money. Are they not obliged to give it to me when I ask for it? Theoretically, yes, but I think that goes back to the rights and freedoms that we're trying to preserve and we're trying to go back to. Um, we knew that up until two months ago, when it came to to banking, although these these regulations have been slowly tightening. You know, it's, uh, two years ago, they were easier than they were two months ago. And obviously, they're a lot more restrictive now than they were two months ago. But um, I think that's exactly the point, that we want to try and get back to the right to do that. It is your money, and they there is not a right to do it. But if they were to say, we now think that you're involved in a nefarious activity, which fall under the, you know, proceeds of crime, they have the right through FinTrack, which was set up probably or quite a few years ago now to freeze and seize while they do an investigation so they can make your life quite difficult if if they wanted just by the designation of your actions and the interpretation of your actions um but it are, is are you are you referring to people who have nothing to do with the trucker convoy but who just want to get their money out of the country they could flag you just because they're going to maybe accuse you of being involved in something nefarious um, that would be a way of, of restricting the outflow. And I think that a lot of the intention at the moment is to restrict the outflow from the country because it will do damage to the economy yeah. uh, if it's not managed. So I think that generally, if, if you are wanting to move a large sum of money, they would try and delay that as much as possible um, just because it, it helps keep the economy going and they've got to look after the, the liquidity of the local economy. Um, if you... Um, are um, a high-profile person within the, the freedom movement and you're an outspoken critic of the government, that would would also, I think, lead to, to, to questions. But at the end of the day, we also need to be, um, to be forthright in the fact that the Canadian um, Charter of Rights and Freedoms does, does give us the right to do things and the right to own property, the right to have our own bank accounts and to, to be in control of our own. And while that is still which it is as of the moment, we can continue to, to argue. But unfortunately, it's now getting to a point where to, to limit the outflow, they are trying to make it as difficult as possible where we have to actually argue the point, yeah. um, which, which becomes tricky. And they can say, well, you know, we think there's suspicious activity on your account. We'd like to look into it. They do have the right to do that sort of thing. And that's all part of the delay tactic, I believe, which is not the Canada that we knew and loved up until, you know, 18 months, 24 months ago. So if I'd like to get my money out of Canada, what is the most efficient way to do it in your mind? Is it to buy some property in the U.S. and uh, or you know, you're maybe retiring or you're maybe going to be doing some work in another country and you need another account. What, in your recommendation, how would you do it? Um, You've lost confidence in Canada and you would like your money out. How would you advise someone doesn't? I think that um, 
and again, um, it's not something that I'm considering, so I haven't looked into it in, in detail, but I think that if you are considering relocating and having that discussion around the importance of shipping money because of the relocation, and that could be things like purchasing property, looking at purchasing a business, that type of thing. I think it gives you a much sounder argument to be able to do that. And if you can, but the primary thing I think is first then to have an account where you can transfer your money to. If you have an account already, then you can have the conversation around relocating, setting up business and, and that type of thing. Okay. And I think that's, that is a very legitimate um, conversation, I think. Um, especially if you can show any evidence of the plan to be able to do that. I think that, yeah. that their, their requirement is to do due diligence. And by having that conversation with you, that's that fair due diligence. There's no reason why they shouldn't, and therefore they would probably let that go. Um, I think that a lot of what they're trying to do is to minimize the panic transfer of, of, of money. And you often see it with political and military turmoil in places. Um, I was in the Gulf states at the time of the Gulf War when um, Iraq invaded Iran, um, or sorry, invaded Kuwait. And the amount of money that flew out of the country within the 48-hour period of that invasion was staggering. Um, and I think that from the lesson of those type of things, that's really what the country is trying to do, is to minimize that massive outflow. So if you have the conversation saying, look, it's legitimate, this is where I'm going to go, this is the business I'm investing in, this is the property I want to invest in, or I'm moving there and I need to get money across there because I'm going to start incurring expenses. Um, anything that you can talk about that's got that legitimate backing, I think, is is a good way of getting that. And then you could probably get the volume you need because it's pre-approved, okay. checked, it's vetted. Um, but as I say, I'm my personal belief is that we need to, to push back the darkness in essentially... Um, the US, Canada, and Western Europe. Th th those are the areas where that, that are being highly targeted in, in terms of this new sort of globalist approach. Um, so my view is we need to stand and um, push back while we can. Um, but if you do have those sort of plans um, and you do have a legitimate claim for that, I think that is a very good way of getting your money out here. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, if there is a run on the bank, if this uh, panic accelerates, as I seem to be noticing with the people that I'm in touch with, what does it look like? What What is the worst case scenario? Does a bank, is that called a foreclosure? Is that where they trigger the buy-in that was legislated years ago? What, what does this look like if the banks really do not have the money or say they don't have the money to give you? Run us through. What, what happens here? I mean, it is, again, I don't want to be sort of fear-mongering, but it is, it is a scary scenario. Um, if that does happen and there, there's a run on the banks, then the, the banks, as you, as you mentioned, do have the right to bail in, which means that they would be able to uh, access um, customers' accounts to sustain themselves. Um, and, and that would be... I mean, it's it's little short of theft, really, when you think about it, because it's a reflection on their ability to run the, run the bank. And but people have assurances against that. I mean, the credit unions um, have uh, credit, uh, or they have um, deposit guarantees, which is better, which are actually better than the commercial banks in 
Um, Alberta, for instance, here, the credit unions have a 100% deposit guarantee. In other words, if the credit union runs out of money, 100% of your money is guaranteed. With the commercial banks, only 100,000 is guaranteed. So most people don't realize that the credit unions are actually better than, than the, the commercial banks. But at the end of the day, if there is a run in the bank and everything un unravels, as we've discussed, the worst case scenario, I think what's really going to hit people is going to be the soaring of inflation and the reduction of the value of the dollar. Mm -hmm. So that your money that is in the bank, even if it's insured and you get it back, it's going to be worth a lot less than when you put it in there. And I think that's going to be a problem because at the end of the day, it could trigger hyperinflation knowing that the currency is fed, currency and confidence is waning in the US dollar and the Canadian dollar. Canadian dollar confidence is probably lower than US dollar confidence, but there's all sorts of other things happening behind the scenes around US dollar and the fact that because of what's happening in Europe, there's now trading happening outside of US dollar as the international trading currency. That could seriously erode the value of the, the US dollar, which would pull down the Canadian dollar. There's a whole lot of dominoes that could, could impact. So I think that worst case scenario would be a real loss of um, value of, of your money and a huge spike in the interest you have to pay on loans that you've to keep up with that and yet the money that you've spent um, and, and that outstanding amount of your loans means that banks could then foreclose on your loans and a scary thing about mortgages and it's worth everybody reading in detail the terms and conditions of your mortgage because pretty much every mortgage gives the financial institute the right to um, take the property as the um, security against your loan if you're unable to pay the loan. So if the bank wrote to you and said, gosh, you know, we're running out of money, we need you to pay back the 100,000 you still owe in your house. You bought a house for 500,000, you paid 400,000 off, you owe 100,000 and they write to you and say, you know, we're in hard times, there's been run the bank, we need that 100,000, please pay it by the end of next week. And if you can't, the wording of most mortgage contracts, in fact, all of them, I think, in Canada, gives the bank the right to take your property. And they will take the entire property, not just the 100,000 component that you still owe, or the 20,000 component that you still owe. So essentially, the, 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 the horror there is that you could lose everything that you've been paying off for the last 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, so trying to be debt-free is a really critical thing as well, because that, I think debt becomes a real leverage that the, the government will have over people because then you'll be forced to take the universal basic income. But to qualify for that, you'll have to be compliant and a good model citizen, um, as we've seen with the Chinese social credit system, mm -hmm. which is very effective with permanent control. It's so, so if let me understand you correctly. So if the banks are struggling to give people uh, money that they're requesting, the first step that they would do is foreclose on um, debtors to them, meaning those people that have mortgage. So that would be the first thing that we'd see a spike in foreclosures. Yeah. If that doesn't work, then you'd see the buy-in perhaps triggered. Is that right? Yeah, I think I think the sequence would be um, foreclosing first or, or pulling in debt first and then the, the, the bail-in. Because to be able to justify the bail-in, they would need to be able to justify that they've tried every other um, source of revenue. And while they've still got money in the market, that would be deemed as um, preferable to, to bail in. So mm -hmm. I think that would be the sequence you see. But when they start to foreclose on 
um, mortgages and even vehicle loans and that type of thing. What you'll find is that people who maybe owe quite a bit on their property or have a couple of properties, maybe they've got some investment in rental properties, they'll try and sell those to get out of the debt. Mm -hmm. And they will probably take whatever they can get, which will pull the price of housing down, which will likely burst the housing bubble. And that will also cause an economic um, shockwave. Mm -hmm. So this could be imminent. Judging from the conversations I'm having with people, this could be imminent that the foreclosures may begin because something's got to give here. If people are, are feeling the panic, the banks appear to be feeling the panic. In my mind, something's got to happen here. Yeah. And I haven't heard of foreclosures yet, but I, I've spoken to some bankers that have said the banks are anticipating a lot of foreclosures this year. So yeah. perhaps we're on the cusp of that. I, I would think we probably are, but I would also... I would also say, and I, I always like to remind people not to, not to just see the doom and gloom, um, and to, you know, be a little bit more pragmatic. As I've said to you, I like to, I like to take things a little bit slower sometimes because I think that we can get swept up in a lot of the, the panic, but I do think we're on the cusp of something happening. Mm -hmm. But I think looking at what's happened in previous countries, and there's not many that have gone through the whole classic meltdown. Zimbabwe is one in particular where, you know, the the economy literally just evaporated in the end. It, it just got completely carried away. But it took a while to build up from the start of it. Once they reached the cusp and the dominoes started to fall, it was probably about six or eight months before it really became obvious. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say that you are probably going to start seeing foreclosures beginning to start happening pretty much now. And I think that the momentum that will probably build up um, but I think it'll be a little bit slower than, than people tend to, to anticipate. And I think that's a, a little bit about the echo chamber that we're in. Um, if you're following alternative media, you, you're really generally within that echo chamber. If you're not, and you're following mainstream media only, you have a completely different view of the world. And you need to look at the percentages of population in each of those camps. My view is there's probably 20% of people um, really following alternative and not the mainstream media at all. So they're in mm -hmm. that bubble. And you've got about 70% on the other side and about 10 in, in the middle. And while I think that we can see all of the doom and gloom and, and, and what we're talking about now, mm -hmm. because 70% of the population are not going to panic, they're not going to withdraw their money, we, we tend to forget that that's quite a moderating force. So, so we're seeing a trend in the economy, mm -hmm. but it's not going to be a massive collapse when everybody says, oh my God, this is a mess. We've got to get out right now. Mm -hmm. Because that 70% don't even know much about what's going on at all. So they, they're fairly content and they, they build a degree of stability into the economy. Mm -hmm. So while we're seeing these things happen, I think we've still got time to work the daily limits and that sort of thing, because I don't think it's going to unravel like that. It'll start, and I agree with you, we're on the cusp, but we've got the 70% almost dead weight in the economy, which mm -hmm. is keeping, it's, it's slowing down the turning of the ship. And I would say, thank goodness for that, because it gives us time to really see what's going on and have more confidence. Yes, we're on the path. We've crossed, crossed, crossed the cusp of this, and mm -hmm. it's beginning to happen, but it's still not going to I don't, I don't believe, and this is only my own personal opinion. Yeah. So no, but, I, I but, agree with you. I, I think that you're right. I think that we are in an echo chamber. We are mm. seeing reality as it is. And 70, 80% of the population has 
is completely oblivious to what's going on in the bigger picture of this yeah. macroeconomic coup. <laughs> uh, so actually it works in our favor because yeah, we, we are, we're anxious. We yeah. can see what's coming down the pipe, but they're oblivious. So yeah. you're right. And that's the vast majority of the Canadian population. So that actually works in our favor. It allows us to get all of our ducks in the line. And yeah. then by the time they figure out what's going on, it may be too late. But I think it will be. But at least then we will have seen the forewarning. And yeah. I've heard, you know, I like to keep my finger on the pulse of these. And probably in the last month and a half, I've heard three times from credible people saying, my God, this is going to happen this weekend. And this is all the reasoning why. And this is the credible person that's told me. This is the news site that's told me. And it, it is scary and it is unsettling, but it doesn't happen. So mm. I would say, don't panic, keep going, keep working the system, work within the system mm -hmm. and, and put in place things like your foreign bank account, your justification, keep arguing for that. Mm -hmm. um, and, but see what's coming. You know, mm -hmm. Essentially, we can see the, 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 where, where this is going. Mm -hmm. And every day, just be happy with what you can do every mm -hmm. day. Don't, don't regret the fact, oh, my God, I lost half of my life savings, uh, you know, when Canada collapsed. Well, at least you got half out because mm -hmm. that 80%, that 70%, 80% won't know what's hit them because mm -hmm. they, they're not even aware of what's going on as yet. And that's a tragedy is that there's going to be a lot of suffering from a lot of people who are purely victims of lies, coercion, manipulation. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, mm -hmm. that's the real tragedy. And that's one of the reasons mm -hmm. why I'm motivated to, to try and talk about these things because mm -hmm. we've got to save as many people from not just, well, just the pain, suffering, and hardship, the unnecessary pain, suffering, and hardship that's going to come with us. The more that people can be prepared, the more we can get through this and more we can get back to rebuilding the world that we want. Imagine if we could rebuild a world without this corruption, without mm -hmm. this manipulation. There's no mm -hmm. reason why it couldn't. And that's yeah. really what I'm looking forward to. Yes. So when you mentioned about the bail-ins, that the commercial banks, charter banks, have a 100,000 uh, guarantee limit on the guarantee, whereas the credit unions have a full deposit guarantee, 100%. Does that mean that if you're with these smaller credit unions, you don't need to worry about the bail-in being a threat? Um, you will have your entire, and how do they operate with that? But they, are they not operating on the fractional reserve system? Or where do they source all the money when there's a mass exodus? Yeah, now it's worth looking um, because the credit union system really operated provincially, not nationally. Credit unions were limited to having customers within or member owners, as they call them, within their province. Mm -hmm. So the different provinces actually have different limits. Alberta is probably the best. Um, they have a 100% guarantee for credit union customers. Other, other provinces have 100, maybe 200,000, that sort of thing. So you need to look at the province that you're living in and the, the credit union limits within your province. So it's worth, worth looking into that. Um, and those guarantees are really um, provided by uh, uh, credit union guarantee insurance. So the credit unions pay for um, member insurance, which is then underwritten, I think, by the, by the provincial governments. So that's worth bearing in mind as well, depending on where the provincial governments want to go. But they would have to change the local laws and regulations around that. Um, and they couldn't just do it. That, that would have to be carefully passed. Um, so you need to keep your finger on the pulse of that. 
because we, you know, you want to know what what the government is up to. But it well, is uh, for an extraordinary circumstances like this. My concern would be that this insurance, especially if it's backed by the provinces, they would mm. say this is extenuating or or you know very unusual circumstances, and therefore this one hundred percent guarantee is null and void. Is that is that a possibility? It, it is a possibility, and I think it's worth monitoring. And mm-hmm. and you know, at the moment, as far as I'm aware. Um, there haven't been conversations around limiting that amount. Um, I haven't heard of it in any of the provinces, actually. It could well be starting to be debated, but I think that it's something that we would need to watch. It's probably not something that could happen overnight, though. Mm -hmm. So, again, I think that the anticipation would be, well, maybe this is coming, we should start talking about it. And then this is uh, why the Credit Union Association needs to be or would have to be involved in in that sort of thing to pass or or to agree to those sort of changes. Mm -hmm. And as credit union members, we have the right to vote on the board and to vote on key decisions. And my view is, um, with everybody that I speak to, is if you can all start to coordinate within your credit unions, find like-minded people, move on mass to maybe the same credit union where you can get a voting block and again, over time, make sure you've got like-minded people on the board and that you that you have sway. But when it comes to people like FinTrack, they fall above the jurisdiction of the credit union anyway. So it is a little bit tricky, but be active in, in your credit credit unions. And as I say, the insurance at the moment seems to be okay, but I would watch it fairly carefully. Uh, so uh, a credit union like Coast Capital is now national. So has it almost become like one of the big charter banks? Um, Does it still have the protection of a smaller smaller credit union now that it's national? One of the, I mean, they lifted the provincial restriction on credit unions probably about five years ago. It was quite a long time ago now. And very few or, or none of the credit unions actually jumped at that opportunity because one of the terms of going national is that you lose your provincial deposit guarantee. Um, and so then you lose one of the advantages that you have a unique selling point over the data banks. Um, but Coast Capital um, and a couple of others, um, Coast Capital is obviously one of the, the larger ones. Coast Capital, you've got Van City, which is is big, and Meridian in Ontario, which is very big. Um, Service Credit Union, Alberta, also very big. Those are probably the four or five biggest ones um, in the country. They all do really operate much like um, charter banks, just because they've got so, or, or commercial banks at least, because they've got so many members, you know, you're talking about half a million members there about, it is a large operation. Um, so the, for them, the advantage of going national is worth uh, losing that um, provincial privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've also got a lot of government business. So therefore, they want to try and get more of that. And, right. and going national is part of the way to do that. So they they're sort of in that transitional phase almost. And I think you're going to see with the introduction of open banking, which is going to happen sometime in the next 12 to 18 months, that's really going to separate the large credit unions, I think, from the the small community credit unions, Mm -hmm. because the small community credit unions won't be able to afford the IT investment to to get onto open banking. And if that becomes a requirement of having your license, it'll just weed out a lot of the smaller financial institutes, which which obviously is is quite a big threat um, to that sort of community-based banking and community-based financial um, institute. So I want to come back to open banking. That's a huge topic. But before I jump into that, 
I just want to clarify. So just because an institution is called a credit union does not mean it has this 100% provincial guarantee. If they've decided to go national, they, they lose that privilege. So that would be Coast Capital, Van City. What are the other uh, credit unions that are now national that no longer have that coverage? Um, I, I actually don't know which ones have done that. It's quite a long process because essentially you have to apply for a, um, a national license. Right. And I know quite a lot of credit unions have asked their members to vote on the decision. Like, we want to go national, are you in agreement? Because they're owned by the members. The members have to vote on mm -hmm. that. And, and it surprises me how many of the what I would term mid-sized credit unions have actually done that vote or, or put it to their, their members. Um, which means that they are looking at, at, at doing that. So there seems to be a growing um, movement towards that. How many of them have actually done it? I'm not sure. Certainly the bigger ones, were, all of them were, were looking at it and considering it. Um, I know, yeah, yeah, so which ones have done it? I'm not sure, but it's well worth, if you are at a credit union, just to check. But you wouldn't know about it because you would have been asked to vote on it if they've done it. If, if they haven't asked you, um, for a member vote, then your credit union is, is not doing it. But generally, the bigger ones, or the ones that straddle um, um, uh, markets, would be looking at it. For instance, mm -hmm. the Service Credit Union in Alberta, um, I don't believe have have started the application process, but they've obviously got branches in, in um, Lloyd Minster, and the border runs right through the middle of that town. Mm -hmm. So they'd like to have branches on the other side of the town. You know, so crazy things like that make them think, well, you know, maybe we should go, go for the license. It's a temptation. Yeah. But I know that there's concern about losing the 100% guarantee that Alberta gives to their credit unions, which is particularly attractive. So the, that provincial guarantee, is that across Canada for any credit union that's operating strictly within their province? There is that 100% um, guarantee no. on the... no. So it, no, it's, it's only in Alberta where you get the 100%, I think. In other provinces, I mean, there might be one or two others that go to 100%, but generally there is a better uh, deposit guarantee than for the charter banks, generally with credit unions yes. across the country. Yes. But the specific rules are different to each and the, and the limits are different to each province. Okay. So again, as a credit union member, it's important to find out about that and to, and to ask. You've got the right to ask. You're a member owner. So find right. out all of the details. Yeah. So the commercial banks, if I have $200,000 in a commercial bank, I am guaranteed up to 100,000 and the remaining sum, they could exercise the bail-in. Now that, I understand, okay, so the, the 100,000 guarantee, they could default on, but with the bail-in pretty much guaranteed, they're going to give you, from what I understand, they give you bank shares, which is causes mass liquidity of the bank shares. Is that right? Is that how you understand it? That the bail Sorry, could you repeat that? I lost you there for a minute. Oh, okay. So from, from what I understand, the mm -hmm. bail-in, they convert your deposit to bank shares. Is that correct? That's my understanding of how it'll work, yes. Um, and obviously not a, which is not a good situation yeah. because you've got a mass dilution. So that, exactly. that is a win. Perhaps it's a win for the bank, but it's certainly not a win for the depositor. So no, and that's the, a big the risk. value of those bank shares would be low because they've got to resort to balance. So exactly. it, it is problematic. But theoretically, that's that's the the softening of the blow to say, no, no, you, you're getting bank shares. And what they would do is then look at the precedent of how bank share value recovered after the financial crash in the the you know early 2000s in Europe and how that value came back after the 
you know, I think it was 2008 crash. Um, and they can say, well, look, your value came back. You just have to sit on that, those shares for a while and you'll get your money back. But that's not what people want. As you said, it's your money. You yeah. should have the right to do with what Absolutely. Like. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, let's, let's jump into the topic of open banking. Uh, I do understand that this is a platform that's being rolled out across all the institutions. Uh, I've been told by some C-suite uh, members of the big banks in Canada that they're planning on rolling it out this year. And the smaller institutions, even obscure little credit unions that I've spoken to, say in Newfoundland, they're also rolling it out, but their timeline's a little less stringent, yeah. it sounds like, next year. So this yeah. is a new platform that is going to integrate digital identity and the central bank digital currency. Is that right? Um, exactly what it could be used for is still a bit questionable, but we know that any tool of power can be used against us and is of concern. The way that they've sold open banking, and, and Europe is much further advanced with open banking than North America. They're probably two years ahead of us, two or three years ahead of us, I think. Um, and the theory behind that was, and, and how they've sold it to the public, is that it would enable your financial information to become much more freely transferable. So you could, uh, with sort of open source and the, the availability of that information, you could open an account much more easily at different institutions. You could move money around much easier. It basically lock people into a financial institute which they consider could be predatory or whatever. And it's supposed to be a public service or a customer service to enable you to have more control and decision-making over mm -hmm. who you're going to do your banking with. It also allows you to use fintechs for certain features of your banking. So essentially now you're going to have an account, but other accounts uh, all over the show, depending on what your need is, and you can manage that centrally. So they sell it particularly well. The downside is that it will depend on, on digital knowledge, digital information, and, and the free flow of that information. Mm -hmm. So when we came to, when it, it came to coming to Canada, um, They've been talking about it for probably, again, three, four years, quite a while on the radar. Um, and when they eventually gave it a timeline, the plan was that they would change the Banking Act first, and banks had a timeline that then uh, adapted a little bit behind that. So credit unions, I think their deadline is six or 12 months behind the, the, the commercial and charter banks. So the banking sector will, will tackle it first, and then the credit unions will come on board later. And that... The credit unions always worried about that because it did put them at a bit of an advantage, a disadvantage, because if it gives the customers all of the freedom, they were feeling that they would be, they disadvantaged, their customers will go to the commercial banks to get the benefit of this. It might actually work the other way where people, that 20% of the population that we were talking about might say, well, I want to keep away from this for as long as possible. Therefore, I'm going to go to the smallest credit union I can find who's going to be at the back of the queue. Yeah. And, do you, think, and do you think there'll be some credit unions then that say, no, thank you. We're not going to launch that platform. We're going to stay on the old system. It, will, will credit unions have an option not to opt into that? I, I personally don't think they will have an option. I think that they will be required as part of retaining their, their banking licenses um, to to adapt to that. And I think that's intentional because they know that it's expensive technology to, to do. And they know that a lot of the small community credit unions just won't have the IT resources or the budget to be able to do that. Um, so I think it is an intentional way of weeding out 
um, community financial options. And if you think about it, credit union formed specifically to give people options outside of government-controlled banking. The theory was that it was community-owned. It was you, your family, your community that were pooling your money and lending it amongst yourselves mm -hmm. to keep yourselves going. That's really how it started in, in Canada in 1935 or 37, whenever it started. It was about pooling your resources because in those days, the central bank didn't have any interest in the provinces particularly. So that's where it started. And I think that the intention of this is to finally put that to bed and, and move away from that little rebellion that happened. Um, and then we'll, we'll be left with the larger financial institutes, all of which are regulated. And I think open banking technology will be Did you get? Oh, okay. Yes, yes. I lost you for a moment there. So in other yeah. words, if a credit union decides not to opt in, you think the government will say that's not an option? Or could the credit union say, we're not, we don't care about your, uh, you know, being accredited by the government? Could they move off and be independent? Would they have that I, option? No, I don't think they have the option. The banking sector is fairly heavily fairly tightly regulated. And again, the reasoning behind that is because of things like, you know, limiting um, money laundering and that sort of thing. So the whole sort of FinTrack has been set up to, to make sure that there are not banking options for um, criminal organizations. Mm -hmm. And so I think it would become a requirement of license. They wouldn't have a choice. They would have to have to oblige with that. So what so options? What options then will we have if we are not interested in the open banking platform, and if we're not interested in the central bank digital currency? What options will we have? I I personally think, and again, this is going to worst case scenario. So who knows what will actually happen? But I would say that prior to that happening, you want to be debt free and you want to be asset rich. And when I say asset rich, I would say if you had value in things like gold, silver, crypto, property, um, equipment, anything like that. Um, and then what you do is you maintain your bank account and you use it really as a transactional account to pay bills. So maintain a very low balance. When you need to make a payment, cash in a gold coin or a silver coin, put the money in the bank, make your transfers and, and keep off the radar that way. I would say that the days of... Um, having investments on the stock exchange or investments in RRSPs, that type of thing, are probably over and we need to change our mindset around that. And I think that's probably the, the way that we'll need to go to, mm -hmm. so that you can maintain the value of your, your life savings, but you're maintaining it in gold, silver, property, mm -hmm. whatever it mm -hmm. happens to be. And then just cash that in at a, at a slow rate as you need to make electronic payments. So the pay. banking account becomes more of a conduit it's not yeah. a place that you park any money. You use it as a vehicle to move assets yeah. from one to yeah. another. Okay, that's very interesting. That is yeah, that's very very useful information. So yeah. I guess my next question is going to be: if we don't want to opt into the the open banking system and we don't want a digital ID and we don't want any part of the central bank digital currency platform, could we opt out and how? I I think that. And I have to apologize. I really don't want to be depressing, but 
it's going to be very difficult to opt out of the digital ID. And if we do, I think that the, again, worst case scenario, what they might say is, sure, you can opt out, but then you don't have any claim to use our system. So sure, you know, you can go and live in the forest and you can eat berries and you can live in a cave because everything else is pretty much um, part of the established system, the mm -hmm. financial system, the sewage system, the electrical system, et cetera, et cetera. So we need to be prepared if we're not going to go for the digital ID to give up a lot of the, the comforts of modern living, I think. And again, we've got time to prepare for that. I would think we've probably got... I'm hoping at least a year before we really see the, the dark side of that beginning to happen. And every day it gives us a chance to keep pushing back because I don't believe that that 20% of the population will just sit back and allow these plans to happen. But it could be where we end up in worst case scenario. So there is value in you know, looking at um, finding your tribe. People always say, find your tribe. Find those people that you might need to rely on if things got to that stage, mm -hmm. pay off as much debt as you can, because with debt, you still have an obligation to pay it off, whether you agree with the system or not, and they won't let you go until you've paid mm -hmm. that off. So try and get rid of as much as you can. Look at, are there communities that you could become part of? I'm very interested in things like, you know, the Hutterite model and the um, Mennonites and that sort of thing. How do they make their community survive? I mean, there was a big rush on communes in the 1960s and 70s. Mm -hmm. Very few of those survived. Why didn't they survive? What should we be doing differently this time? Mm -hmm. And it, it does sound like, you know, post-apocalyptic walking dead type of conversations, but it would be prudent to think about those sort of things because I do think that without the digital ID, they've got the right to say, well, you know, we've built the system for the people that want to be part of it. You don't want to be part of it. You can't just take what you want. You either take it or you leave it. And I think that we might need to think about what decision would we make if we were faced with that choice. And if we, if we, walked into, if we do opt into it, do not feel so for the unvaccinated, there will be consequences where they will be blocked out of it. They will have their accounts frozen. So there's that hesitation to yeah. even adopt that program because exactly. if you're in their system, they're monitoring you and I'm sure part of the digital ID, they say they're going to be monitoring your vaccine status along with your um, social media activity. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, everything will be incorporated into that digital identity. So Absolutely. really by opting into it, it provides them the ability for surveillance and yeah. for uh, freezing your, yeah. so, so if you opt in, they may freeze your bank account. So what is the point of joining it? I, in no. some ways, unless you have, I, I sometimes think maybe there will be financial mules who we hire them, they're in the system, and we hire them to do certain functions for us. I mean, that, that'll, yeah, that'll certainly happen, um, but it can't happen on mass. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a trusted relation who has got all these vaccines, but is questioning the validity of that feels victimized who might be able to to help you great but mm -hmm. at the end of the day if we were to opt into the system it would mean full compliance yeah. um, because they're looking for a compliant mm -hmm. that 
is going to agree and support whatever the government does. Mm -hmm. So if we decide, look, you know, it's going to be easy if I just comply, you're going to need to be up to date with everything they tell you to be up to date with. And your ability to question anything will get less and less going forward because this is not the end game. This is not where it's going to end. You know, there will be more demands. There'll be more restrictions. There'll be more um, encroachment of your remaining rights over time. So to me, we've got to stop it one way or the other. And the sooner that we do, the better. The sooner we get to respect of freedoms. Um, So I think a lot of us will probably choose not to participate in the system. But then just think about the reality that that might require disconnecting yourself from the system altogether. And that'll include things like access to the internet, because that'll be a privilege for the compliant. Um, Driver's license will be a privilege of the compliant. Buying fuel will be a privilege of the compliant. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, how far could it get? All of these tools could be used. They're tools for good and evil, depending on whose finger is on the trigger. Exactly. Um, And we eventually need to get to a place where human rights are respected once again and people have the freedom Mm -hmm. to pretty much do what they like as long as my viewers don't hurt anyone else, don't don't abuse and, you know, basically obey obey the laws. But it really Mm -hmm. comes down to that basic principle of do no harm. If we all lived by the fact that all of our decisions did no harm, it would be a beautiful Mm -hmm. world that we live in. Yeah. So are you personally thinking that you will probably opt out of the digital identity system and the central bank digital system and you will uh, try to barter and, and part of, be part of, I guess, a parallel society? Is that your plan? I, I believe I won't have a choice, unfortunately. Um, and in my current position at Canada Health Alliance, I'm working particularly hard on looking at a parallel healthcare system. Um, so I am already looking at, at parallel systems that will be able to serve that 20%, or not just the 20%, but everyone, because it's a non-discriminatory system. That's the whole line. Mm-hmm. We don't want to discriminate against anyone, and we believe everybody's right to things like healthcare. Mm-hmm. But I think that the I'm probably having trouble personally coming to terms with the reality of that. And I think a lot of people do, because mm-hmm. can we really imagine what the extreme of this could be? And I think... On a dark day, I can imagine that. And I'm hoping that we will be able to push it back before we get to that. But at the end of the day, I unfortunately, in my position, cannot cannot consider complying around things like the vaccinations and that sort of thing. I think that we, to me, that would be a principled stand where Mm -hmm. it is acceptance of the system. And if you're going to accept, you may as well accept everything because you can't, this is a case of yes or no. You can't live halfway. And we are living a little bit halfway at the moment in that we mm-hmm. be using the benefits and enjoying the benefits of the civilized world that we're in. You know, we've got housing, we've got warmth, we've got a car that we can drive. If they want to take all of that away, how many people will still stay the course? And unfortunately, I think that I'll be one of those that stay the course because we have to. This is a mm-hmm. war against between good and evil that's right and i have to stand on the side of good mm-hmm. and i think so, we all do so it's a principle it's, it's really sticking to your principles but there is going to be some hardship so yeah. essentially if you are refusing to comply you do not enter the new digital identity system you don't enter the new central bank digital system you're outside of uh society what will happen to to paying taxes? We, if we're not getting the benefits of society, will we be obliged to pay taxes anymore? 
Well, there's a lot of um, a lot of conversations around that, around, and this goes to the whole natural law type of debates that a lot mm-hmm. of people are looking into and saying, mm-hmm. like, well, you know, this is almost a contract that that we don't need to participate in. And I, I mean, I, I hear two sides to that story. There's, you know, different lawyers have got different opinions, and to me, the argument is not really cut and dry. But if we were to be ejected from the commercial system uh, and and the economy, um, it would be, we would, I mean, the way that I would see it is we almost become homeless because we can't participate in the system. And as such, we won't be paying taxes anyway, because I don't think many homeless people are are worried about their taxes, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, And we would therefore need to move away and and form communities that look after themselves that start to trade or barter within themselves. Mm -hmm. And I think that that could be quite successful because a lot of very capable people are going to be moving into that community. Um, So it's not as if we are dealing with the dropouts of society. These are motivated people who know their rights, who want to exercise them and feel that they have um, they have the right to do that and, and are motivated to try and make it work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that people will suffer severe financial hardship. But I think there will also be an attitude of standing together, because if we stand together, we will be able to make this work. I mean, there's countries out there, countries that I've lived in, that have populations of less than three, four million people. Um, 20% of the Canadian population is more than that. It is a viable nation within Canada that could perfectly stand and has great expertise. At Canada Health Alliance, I know lots of doctors, nurses, dentists, um, all sorts of people in the healthcare industry who are making a a principled stand. Mm -hmm. So these are highly qualified, highly capable people that can build a new economy. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to require, it's going to be a test of faith. And I think that that's something that we need to strengthen as well, not just our, our financial standing and our, and our asset base, but at the end of the day, by standing on the side of what's right and what's good and, and being firm in that, we need, to, we need to have our faith tested and we need to, to know that we can get through this. So essentially, if you have a home and you have no mortgage, you will maybe need to still pay property taxes, but you may not be able to be on the electric grid you may not be on the telephone uh, grid or communication grid. You may not have access to water, sewer. So if you manage to make your home self-sufficient in that way, do you think that you would be allowed to stay in it? Or do you think the government would choose to evict people? I mean, they, we, we're not really living in um, under normal um, rule of law at the moment, because when you think about the in, encroachments that have already been made, mm-hmm. they're not um, they're not accepted according to the Canadian Charter uh, of Rights and Freedoms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're already moving outside of the realm of of normal accepted law. So who's to know where that could end? They could certainly evict you, and it goes to much like the situation in South Africa in the 1970s, where sorry for that, the colour of your skin means you have to live over there and, and you know, we're going to now bus you wherever we feel like it. This is exactly the same situation where because of the choices that you make and your attitude towards bodily integrity, we have the right to take your property away. It could certainly get to that. And in so, different places, look what happened to the Jews 
during the late 1930s in, in, in Germany and in, in Europe, the rule of law does not seem to necessarily apply at this stage. And so, your pro- so your property could be confiscated even if you did manage to become off the grid and establish uh, a clever way of navigating, they still could confiscate. They, they could, but what I think where, where people might be able to get away with it is if you go a little bit out of town, a little bit into you know, the sort of agricultural areas, that's sort of maybe smaller towns, and make yourself self-sufficient there with solar and wind power or whatever it happens to be, um, wood stoves to keep you warm, that type of thing. I think that when this unraveling happens, there will be quite a lot of unrest in the urban areas, probably driven largely by by hunger, actually. It, mm-hmm. it could get to that point. And I think that the authorities will be so involved in trying to maintain their um, grip on control in the urban areas, they won't really have the resources to start going after some smaller communities that are minding their own business in the, the rural areas. Mm-hmm. And that's where I think that you'll probably be able to get away with it, because by the time those communities emerge, hopefully we'll be pushing back the darkness and, and things will be starting to improve and mm-hmm. we'll be starting the rebuilding process, which I think that'll be great when that happens. Um, so getting out of the urban areas, I think, is quite a priority. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you. I think there's going to be a lot of unrest and there could be violence. When, when people are hungry, they become violent. So you can have your pantry all full and someone arrives at your door and uh, helps himself. So yeah. I agree with you there. I think going to a more rural setting where you have a very strong community. But yeah. I, I think the, the concept of somehow making that choice now, looking ahead that you are not going to be part of this new system with the digital identity, that's a decision that needs to be made now because it sounds like, well, Ontario has announced they're going to be rolling it out in the fall with the digital identity. This is coming faster. It seems to be accelerating. So this is yeah. a decision that we need to make which means that we may lose our driver's license, we may lose our health care, we may lose all of those conveniences and uh, luxuries that we've considered a Canadian right, those may be stripped of us. Yeah, and I think that you're right. I think that just getting to that point of making the decision that you're going to need to do that because looking at the tra- trajectory of where we're going, if it does go that way, where, where are you going to, what, what decision are you going to make? If you're going to say, well, no, the pain is not worth it. I'm going to comply. Well, then comply today. Don't have yeah. any more pain. Yeah. You know, but I think, I think the vast the- majority of those uh, of us who have decided not to comply to, to, you know, to date, mm. I think very few are going to change their mind now. I think okay, the, yeah. the vast majority are digging in their heels saying, no, this is, you know, it really is the bodily autonomy. So I, exactly. my sense is that the, we know who our, our tribe is. Now it's getting organized. So I think, and formalizing in your mind, what is it going to look like if you don't adopt these systems? So I want to briefly touch on uh, the hard asset concept. What are the hard assets you've touched on on some of those being silver coins? What are the things that you would say that the tractors, the, you know, uh, uh, go, of course, the precious metals and, and uh, property, rural property, what are some of the hard assets that you advise people to really be considering? I often think generators yeah. or compressors, you know, but rattle off wood burning fires, you know, cookers. And yeah. I think um, depending on where you're going to be living, um, mm-hmm. and there is a bit of a rush to rural property at the moment. Yeah. If, you, if you're going to invest in rural property, then 
the means of self-sustaining on that rural property would be important. Yeah. Um, and that would be things like generators, um, chainsaws, tractors, uh, anything like that. Looking at setting up things like chicken hutches and that sort of thing, planting fruit trees like mad while you can so that you get closer to your harvesting, or, you know, that type of thing. Um, for the average person who's in an urban area and who doesn't have the means of, you know, becoming hobby farmers, which people are looking at quite seriously, I think that having gold and silver is a good idea. Um, I personally like silver coins because a one-ounce silver coin is worth about $40 at the moment, and I think it'll hold its value. Silver and gold has really been flatlining for a long time, but I think that's been held down artificially, so mm -hmm. I think it'll, it'll soar. But, it, but a silver coin could allow you to to trade. A gold coin is worth about two and a half thousand. You can't really get change on that. Mm -hmm. So I tend to, to prefer silver coins than gold. But the thing is about gold coins is that it, it, they're very light and easy to transport because mm -hmm. 10 gold coins, if you put that into silver coins, it's like a whole suitcase full. So practicality comes into it as well. Yeah. Um, so, and then I think that the other means of survival are things like, you know, freeze-dried food if you're living in an urban area, um, you know, a canning system, maybe a, a freeze-drying system, um, a water purification um, system, nothing too sophisticated, but it, that enables you to purify rainwater to drink and that sort of thing. Basically, think about what will happen if you lose electricity, power, and, and, and water, well, heating um, electricity and, and water. What would you need for that? So, the thing about generators is that you need a fuel source for those generators. Mm -hmm. So you need to think about that. But if you've got um, uh, wood burning stoves and uh, solar inverters, you could, you could, you know, run electricity on the solar inverters. You don't need to run the heating. So that, that could be the way around it. But it's really all of those type of things. If you've got land that you can work, tractors, that sort of thing. But also anything that could work as, as currency for bartering. Mm -hmm. um, a friend of mine was saying about a year or two ago that he was stocking up on ammunition, not because he had the weapon to use it, but over the last 12 months prior to that, the cost of ammunition had gone up by 50%. So he's saying, well, this is a good investment. Mm -hmm. What other mm -hmm. investment goes up by 50%? And it's a fair point. Mm -hmm. But again, mm -hmm. you know, to me, that sounds a little bit, you know, post-apocalyptic, walking dead type of thing. But you know, sometimes it, it's an interesting idea. And, and if it, if there is demand for that sort of thing, you can trade with it. So we need to. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I think ammunition, alcohol, I think hard alcohol is another, Definitely. you know, the $10, $12 bottles. Those, in my mind, those are very helpful. Batteries. Um, yeah. Those sort of assets, hard assets seem to me to be very sensible. Yeah. Another question I have is on, um, if you have a property and you really want to keep it and it is maybe not in a rural area where you can be sustainable, but you're hoping that we come out of this mess. If you put a property in a corporation, would that protect you from maybe having it uh, seized or confiscated? I think, I think it's quite a good idea because it does also um, put it in the name of the, the business as opposed to the name of an individual. Um, and obviously, they're going to be going for individuals first before they tighten the net in other areas, I think. So individuals will be first corporations, then they'll look into who owns a corporation and are those people compliant and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that would, that would help. And I talk a lot about, um, you know, um, putting things in place and buying yourself as much time as you can, because when I talk about 
putting your money into a small credit union, it probably will buy you up until the 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 um, up until open banking is forced on all institutions. But it's buying you time, mm-hmm. and by putting your property in the name of a corporation, it buys you time. And I think those are prudent things to do, because the more time you buy, we get closer to turning back the tide on this darkness and to mm-hmm. coming out of the other side. Mm-hmm. And all we all we want people to do is to survive to that point, yes. you know, through it, and then be part of the rebuilding of of the new system, which is non-discriminatory and respects people's rights and mm-hmm. and doesn't have the degree of corruption that we're seeing in, in government and corporations mm-hmm. now. Are, know, are you optimistic? I mean, as far as I see, we're heading towards a social credit system, exactly what we have in China. Yeah. That, to me, there's a permanence with that. It's very hard to extract yourself from that system once it's in place mm. and people are trapped. So is there room for optimism? Because with the digital ID that's coming down the pipe and the central bank digital currency that is global, you know, I think all the central bankers are talking about it. Do you think there is hope? Um, I think that there is hope, definitely. And in fact, um, without hope, we, we may as well all line up and, and become compliant right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think there's a difference between blind hope and, and calculated hope. And I think that we do have reason to be hopeful. Mm-hmm. Um, the digital idea is probably inevitable. Um, and rather like a lot of things, it often depends on how it's used. We've seen how it's used in China, and that's why we're terrified of it. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. It, it could be just the digital housing of information and how it's used, how it's shared, how public it becomes, really depends on the government of the day and the mm-hmm the administration of the day, whether it's government or a new council of elders or whatever we end up with in the future. So the principle of it isn't really what terrifies me. It's who's got control of it and how they use it that, that worries me. That's right. And that, the, the situation we have now is a problem because there's there's a degree of corruption and ambition, which, which is problematic. So I think that's inevitable. Um, and I think that as people are faced with more pain through these impositions, there will be more pushback. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's enough people who are going to push back that could tip the balance. Mm -hmm. And I also think that with the fracturing of the United States, and we always talk about sort of red states and blue states, and I don't think that they're necessarily red or blue. Um, I would think that there's more states that are pro-freedom and liberty as opposed to those that, that aren't. But there's a dividing line in the US. The US is not a unified country when it comes to these things. And I think that dividing line will lead to fracturing. And I think that will help fuel fracturing, or not fracturing, but fuel a turn of the tide in Canada, because obviously mm-hmm. we were affected by what happens in the US. Mm-hmm. And the US also feels a little bit beholden to us at the moment because Canada started the, the, the convoy movement, which was really a global inspiration. So I think that there's a feeling of we need to help the Canadians as well, which is great because mm-hmm. this whole rivalry between Canada and the US is just part of all the divide and rule that we've seen. Mm-hmm. We are all one people who love freedom mm-hmm. and respect freedom. And that's what I think we'll come out of the other side on as a community that loves and respects freedom. And that's what we will rebuild. So, mm-hmm. and then lastly, I think that this is a war between good and evil. And I think that no matter who your God is, I think we, we all basically have the same God. We've just packaged him differently depending mm-hmm. on our tribe and our history. 
So we know that there is a God of good and righteousness mm -hmm. and that there is a devil of evil, if I can put it that way. Mm -hmm. Who they are and what they are and what planet they come from, I have no idea. But I believe that we've been put in place to make sure that goodness and righteousness prevails. Mm -hmm. And we wouldn't have been on this journey, we wouldn't have chosen to be here if we couldn't win this fight. So mm -hmm. I'm personally quite sure we will win the fight. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, the inevitability of things like the digital ID in itself is not the problem. It's who has control over that, mm -hmm. which, which is something we just pay more attention mm -hmm. to in future. Because one of the lessons we've learned is not to relinquish control of our education system, our media, our healthcare system, all of that. We've just let it go because we are comfortable. Life is great. They'd never do this to us. Mm -hmm. to us. Mm -hmm. Canadians are, are notorious for being very trusting. We're very exactly. kind and we trust our government. And, and we have good reason to have trusted. We have, you know, we have a history of our government for the most part. Um, yeah being quite responsible and putting the people first, but that's deteriorating quickly. But I, I'm, I'm quite concerned about this digital identity and the central bank digital currency because it's in the hands. The drivers have very nefarious plans. There's no goodness in this. It's all about control. And Absolutely. it's part of, you know, it's part of that, this I, I, globalist agenda of control. Uh, and so I, I agree with you. It is a battle of good and evil. And I do believe that good ultimately wins. But we may go through a very, very dark chapter, yeah, and it, it's surviving. It's surviving that survive, you know, that chapter and coming out through the other end of the tunnel. That's, yeah. you know, I think. Uh, Fortunately, we do have a little bit of time to prepare. Not a lot, but I think that we can see what's coming. Mm -hmm. And and as you say, it's it's worth thinking about where will you stand when you have to decide if you're going to participate in the digital uh, ID or not. Yeah. And depending on that answer, that then leads you to the next one. Well, what am I going to do then? Yes. How am I going to survive when I don't have access mm -hmm. to the comforts of modern living that I've got so used to? Mm -hmm. And well, then maybe I should start looking and I should start planning. And I think that would be prudent for all of us, knowing that every day we have the chance of turning the tide. Yes. Sooner or later, it'll turn. And what we do every day builds uh, other supports or weakens that. So let's yes. all support it and let's all put out the fire while it's still containable. Yes. Well, I think it's a very important focus that people should have right now on if they are not willing to adopt this new digital identity and the central bank digital currency, what is their plan? Mm. Because ultimately, uh, if you're not if if you're not compliant, you need a backup plan, and it needs to be quite concrete, or you will not be putting food on the table and and be you know in a heated space, etc. Are you considering leaving Canada? Or are you are or are you committed to staying and trying to eke out an existence in the northern hemisphere? I I don't feel that I have really a, much of a choice. I've been in Canada about ten or twelve years and came from the third world, so I didn't really come with a great deal of money. And so I don't really have the financial resources to have much of a choice at this stage. So my view is that it's probably worth standing and, and making a stand. Mm -hmm. um, if it was easier um, to, to move, I guess we probably would all consider that. But I, I also wonder if the stand needs to be made in, in the, the old first world, the US, Canada, and, and Western Europe. Mm -hmm. Because if we can stop it here, 
it won't spread to everywhere else. Mm -hmm. If we don't stop it here, it'll be very hard to stop it um, in the developing nations and, and the third world. Mm -hmm. This is really the time and place that we need to make the stand. Mm -hmm. And I think that the the battle will be won here. I don't think I don't think we'll lose here. And the reason why I say that is that I think that the United States won't won't succumb. I think there's such polarizing in the community. They're really going back to the Trump years, which mm -hmm. where you saw the huge separation of attitude within the U.S. population. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that fracturing will lead to to a divide. And I think that the the ex-red states, if I could call them that, feel much more motivated about the loss of their freedoms. Mm -hmm. People in the blue states are going to be distracted with healthcare issues and don't understand the resistance that's being made on the other side. So I think the resolve of the, the ex-red states will be stronger. And I think that, that will we'll see the, the, the main sort of falling of the dominoes happen there and then mm -hmm. Canada. We don't have the same divide in Canada, but I think that once America starts to take sides, um, we will, you know, it'll it'll fuel the the rise of the freedom movement in in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I worry about the propensity for violence in the U.S. because you've got the midterm elections coming up, and then you've got another big election in two years' time. And I think that there will be strong opinions when those events happen. Mm -hmm. I, I, my suspicion is there could be uh, a civil war in the US. And I know people like Martin Armstrong are mm -hmm. suggesting his uh, Socrates program, which has an incredible uh, history of being very accurate. Um, Socrates is showing that there will be civil war in the US in yeah. 2024. So that being said, we may not, uh, the Americans may not be a shining example for a while of conquering this, it could be uh, a very upsetting time. Well, and, and I don't think, I'm not necessarily seeing the Americans conquering us. I'm seeing that they will um, sort the, themselves out as a nation through pr quite likely civil war, who knows if it'll get mm -hmm. to that, but mm -hmm. they'll sort themselves out. While that's happening, the um, the American empire Will will lapse and mm -hmm. China will will take a leading role on the world stage. Mm -hmm. But once America has sorted themselves out, the the moral support to the freedom inclined community in Canada will increase dramatically because mm -hmm. it'll be in America's interests to have like minded people on their northern border. Absolutely. So I think yeah. we'll see a lot of support at that stage. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. then once that happens, I believe you know, once we get to that stage, there'll also be infighting within the globalists as the rise of China happens, because China is not going to bend the knee to the globalists. And at the same time, the globalists are not going to bend the knee to China. So it's a little bit like the pact between the Nazis and the Soviets during the Second World War. Everybody knew they were ideologically opposed. Mm -hmm. It was a, a pact of convenience. And as soon as they could, they got each other's throats. And that led to the, 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 their defeat in the Second World War. Yeah, um, I, I hope, I, I do hope, you're right. I hope there is infighting. And it does yeah. already, I sense that may have already begun with Russia, yeah. China, Iran. I'm, on one hand, I'm trying to figure out whether or not they're with the globalists and are they part of this World Economic Forum agenda or are they breaking off, are they splintering and challenging it? So yeah. You know, I, it, it's I think, very interesting. It, the verdict's still out, but I think, uh, we, you know, we're watching very carefully to see. Yeah. And I think that the, there is a splintering going on, but I think the Chinese are definitely, and have for many decades, 
been working on global control mm -hmm. and they see the convenience of the globalists. Mm -hmm. And I think the globalists see the convenience of using sort of China as, as the, their, their might, uh, as it were. Mm -hmm. But I think neither plans to get to the finish line with, with each other burdening themselves. Mm -hmm. So I think there will be, that unraveling I think has already beginning to happen. And I think, although the, the war with Russia and Ukraine, I think that was probably pre-planned pre I think that um, the the Russian leadership is at odds with the globalists now, and you know whether they were part of the young leaders movement or whatever, which seems to have been the case. I think there's there's changes going on beneath the surface, which mm -hmm. we will only really get to see in a couple of months, maybe a couple of years. We'll mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. um, Alan, one one last question. I, I we could talk on and on. And there's so many interesting discussions to have with you. Um, where do you suggest people put their precious metals? That's a tough question. And it's something that I've been asked quite a lot. I mean, if, if I was going to put it in a safety deposit box, I'd put it in a safety deposit box with a small credit union who's unlikely to spy on you. I do fear that if you put it in to a large place like Brinks, if you've got pallets of gold, which some people do, um, I think they are obliged to report um, on that. So what I would do is I would break it up into small pieces and spread it as far and wide as possible. Generally with smaller financial institutes, which are unlikely to spy on you. Um, and then I would also keep some nearby that I could, um, that you could pick up and take with you if you needed to. So um, if it's a small amount, like a shoe box or a tissue box full, that type of thing, I, I would say, bury it in your garden or hide it in a very unlikely place in the house, but at least you've got enough that you can pick up and you can exit with it if you needed to. Mm -hmm. But I would say spread it around as much as you can mm -hmm. um, and, and know where it is. And if you are going to bury it or hide it somewhere, what I also suggest to people to do is to write an, an addendum to their will seal it in an envelope and sign and seal that, that envelope so it can't be opened Give it to your lawyer to add to your will that if you do get a heart attack or get run over by a bus, your heirs know where to find it. Because that's yeah. the thing is a lot of people are going to, you know, die and that that will be lost. So always think about those sort of practicalities. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. to my mind, spread it as much as you can and, and put it in different little institutions for the safety deposit boxes or hide it and know where you've hidden it. And, so, go, and go two feet down. A banker told me, do some yeah. nighttime gardening, dig it in your yeah. garden, but dig it down and mark the coordinates, the GPS yeah. coordinates, and make sure that loved ones are aware of, of And the I would do it as, as deeply as you can and probably under rock as well, um, okay. because the reason is metal detectors currently go two, two feet down. Uh, in time, that might be more. So, right. so hide it as- Go deeper, under rock. Okay, that's a very good and point. And also if you are- of slate over it. And so if, that, if, you buy, if you buy gold in Canada, I understand if you buy under $3,000, the, yeah. the shops are not obliged to report it. Is that true? And beyond um, that, they, they are required. Yeah, my belief is that that is true. Um, so there's quite a few fairly reliable um, suppliers at the moment that you can buy. And I would just buy, you know, two and a half thousand from each of them once a month. And again, in time, you can build that up. And that, again, is my pragmatic approach. Don't, don't be panicked by the deadline. Just buy as much as you can, but keep it under the radar. Mm -hmm. Because... I mean, even, even over that, 
it becomes tricky if they're going to recall gold. And they have done that before in the US, and there's a chance that that might happen. And I think depending on how bad the situation, the economic situation gets, they might do that. Silver, probably less likely. And I think there will be quite a high industrial demand for silver. Silver is much more bulky to, mm-hmm. to keep though. Um, so, so consider consider both of those. But yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting that. point. They're much less likely to recall silver than gold. Yeah. But but they did that when it was part of the gold standard. They recalled it. So now yeah. it's not. It, it's not a form of official. You know, it's not tied in with an official currency. But if the government doesn't know that you have it because you've been buying smaller quantities, they can't yeah. recall what they don't know. Yeah. What 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 they did in in America when they they did that recall is they they've uh, made you complied uh, or compelled by law to sell it to the government. And they might do a similar thing. So again, if you choose to or not, would, would be your own personal decision whether you could right. to, to hand that in. But I think that the less knowledge they have about it, the better. Yeah. And also you claim if you've bought two and a half thousand bucks worth, um, you know, a year or two ago, and they say we're coming knocking for it, you could claim that you've you've sold it because you ran into hard times. Mm-hmm. But all of these sort of things become questionable because then they might say, well, prove it, you know, show us the receipts, whatever. Yeah. It just yeah. becomes messy. So yeah. it is worth buying as little as you can to keep below the radar. But I would say, in my knowledge, there's probably at least five, six, seven, eight, ten good good reliable dealers. So if you if you can buy twenty five thousand bucks worth a month every month for three, four months, you, you begin to turn quite large sums of money. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I couldn't sustain that. I just don't have the money. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, whatever so, you can get, just whatever you can. Uh, one moment here. I'm just going to plug in my battery. <laughs> Give me one second here. I don't want to uh, lose you. Perfect. We're back in business. Uh, so what are your thoughts? Okay, I'm back. Sorry. Um, so what are your thoughts about buying gold offshore? Or outside of Canada and having the gold stored in vaults outside of Canada? I'm in two minds about that. And the reason why is that I don't know if we can really trust knowing that that gold is there and if if it's going to be there when you want it. Um, and I know that there's all sorts of safeguards and you can go and look at it if you want and that sort of thing. I, I just like the tangibility of having it in my hand and knowing that I could use it for currency if I needed to. Mm-hmm. If things become really bad and we've got to start bartering, nobody's going to barter with me when I say, here's my certificate and it shows that I've got this big wedge of money. It's like, well, great, but mm-hmm. you know, you need to pay for the eggs right now type of thing. So my inclination is to look at um, gold and silver coins that I can carry with me and that I can barter with if I, mm-hmm. if I need to. Mm-hmm. 
but but again, I know that that's impractical if you're talking about large sums of money. So, mm-hmm. um, but I guess my focus is more on the the average person on the street. Yes. Yeah. Well, I I know that uh, buying ETFs, uh, I I'm very much against because I understand that for every physical ounce of gold or silver, there's sixty to hundred ounces of paper. Exactly, gold just like silver. the rest of the banking system. Exactly. In a, in other words, this is um, you know junk gold or junk yeah. silver, okay. and exactly. I don't think I think the institutional investors are using this quite prolifically and leading people to believe that they actually all of these paper instruments are backed by physical gold or silver, but I think obviously they're not. You know, that's such a wide gap, one to 60 to one to 100. Yeah. That, that to me tells me that physical gold and silver has been artificially suppressed. Yeah. The real price, I've heard some people say it could be 50 to 200 times yeah. the current value. And yeah. one interesting report I heard this week on the Michael Campbell show is we have a guest on um, who goes to the auctions to buy coins. And he said that gold coins are trading at 30% premium to the spot price. That tells mm-hmm. me, that tells me there's a problem. That tells yeah. me the current spot price of gold is not reflecting reality. Yeah. And that's and only the, going the to... Price, the spot price is preset. So that's exactly right. Yeah. It, it's not taking demand into account at all because... Not at all. No. The gold dealers that are you know delivering coins door to door are being... They've got more business and they know what to do with the demand right. is quite overwhelming. And it's hard. But, it's hard for them to get their hands on the physical yeah. uh, asset at this point. And at what point is, because I know that the gold price is set twice a day, but it's based on the paper gold price, not exactly. on the physical gold price. So yeah. at some point, this fraud will be exposed. And we could see, in my mind, you could see the precious metal prices go for not a just a double or a triple. It could be. Uh, a magnitude yeah. of it could be a magnitude of 10 or 50 or 200. And I, and I think that then opens up possibility for how you get money out of the country, though, if gold is becoming that valuable, it becomes tricky. But mm-hmm. what I've known some people to do in, in other economies where there's been economic meltdown, you think about places like Greece and that sort of thing. Um, what people did is they got their gold coins um, and gold bars took it to a jeweler, fashioned it into a bracelet, put it on their wrist and flew out of the country. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, so in times like that, gold is gold always has an intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, again, the, the physicality of that appeals to me because you can't do that if you've got money in a, or gold bars in a vault offshore. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people don't even see that because it's all a paper transaction. Yeah. You know, I, I wouldn't trust that at all. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to me, hands-on is a big thing. And I think that's mm-hmm. going to be important going forward. Yeah. Well, Alan, Alan Bruff, it has been such a delight to chat with you. Your wealth of knowledge and experience. I really, really appreciate your time. And let's talk again soon. Well, I hope I haven't been too depressing, but to me, plan for the worst, hope for the best, and know that we will get through this. That's really what I want to leave people with. Thank you. Thank you for your time.